Dear Grace Church, as we have sought the Lord, we strongly sense a change of direction from the leadership of the Holy Spirit concerning today's sermon. In an effort to speak in to our cultural moment, I want to draw your attention to the Old Testament book of Obadiah, most likely one page or a page and a half in your Old Testament, situated sometime in the 500s BC, almost assuredly right after 586 when the people of God had been captured by Babylon. Before we get into just a few details of that passage and seeking to speak into our moment, let me already say, uh, let me also say that at about one o'clock this morning, I finished recording the sermon on 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 15, which was scheduled to be our text for today. Uh, Lord willing, that sermon will be just bumped back one week, and today's message, I think, will be obviously uh, available for, for today, or today available for obvious reasons, I should say. I want to confess that I'm exhausted. It's no doubt going to make my already difficult uh, to perform audio preaching even more difficult. So I am going to try to constrain my thoughts just to a few things. Just to set the stage, um, we're in multiple months now of a global pandemic. Our local church has not met for over two months in person for gathered worship. The word church in the New Testament is ecclesia, which means ecclesia, the called out ones. And we're called out to the Lord and called together uh, to gather, to assemble for the worship of our God. And in addition to that global pandemic and all the incredible limitations and losses that accompany it, we are also now in a national crisis. Uh, surely you all are well aware of the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis. Over the last few days, our nation has increasingly combusted it is no doubt a matter which had hovered just below the surface of combustibility for a long time and in many other situations could have easily combusted as is the case now. In addition to the outrage and anger and sense of voicelessness for a tremendous subset of humanity in this nation, there are also other factors at play. The book of Obadiah, I believe, helps us to see what some of those factors are. And I pray that the Lord would help us in this moment. Before I turn my attention to that passage, let me give some just personal reflections 
as we lead into the text. Uh, from Tuesday until today, my family, minus me, Tracy and all the kids, have been in Minneapolis. They've been staying uh, less than a mile from the epicenter of the most intense portions of the rioting and looting. They are, thankfully, as I mentioned, on their way back today. About one hour from now, Nathan and April Sawyer are scheduled to be getting on a plane to fly to Minneapolis to serve potential prospective TCT pastors and their wives in the assessment process for church planters. We have many friends in the Twin Cities. We are connected to a number of churches. The largest cluster of TCT churches are in and around the Twin Cities, including Bethlehem Baptist Church, where my family spent a year in 2005 and 6. In addition to that, and the things that my family has seen and heard throughout the week, I have been talking with various neighbors, a young man here in Uptown that I know and love, who calls me, refers to me as Pops. Uh, he and I have had multiple phone calls, I think five of them in the last three days. Uh, this young man is not a believer. He is an African-American, and uh, he's very conflicted. But it's not lost on him that in addition to the atrocities of law enforcement killing of unarmed black men, in addition to that atrocity, and please let it land on you that that is atrocious, full stop, end of paragraph. In addition to those atrocities, it's not lost on people like the friend that I mentioned in Uptown that there are other factors at play. So he, as a 26-year-old young man, is perceptive enough to realize that the media has an agenda. And, as he put it, how interesting it is that the cameras seem to fix only on Anglo-uniformed officers or predominantly on Anglo-uniformed officers in the midst of the rioting and confrontations between civilians and law enforcement. Whereas, one of my closest friends, with whom my family stayed this week in Minneapolis, a pastor, uh, was also in the midst of those riotous scenes and noticed that what he would perceive as the vast majority of uniformed officers were not Anglo. And incidentally, they were not as often caught on camera. So what our neighbor here in Memphis and what the pastor there in Minneapolis both uh, saw and understood was that in addition to the obvious challenges of ethnic harmony in our country and the long history of challenges that you all are aware of in our country, there is also an agenda pushing a narrative. And there are people trying to exploit others to become more volatile, to be more divisive and more incendiary in their comments and to exacerbate the problems. And in many ways, 
those people are being successful. Added to that, it has been reported and alleged and uh, close to verified as much as is possible in a situation like ours where everybody's wearing masks that there are people intentionally inciting riotous situations and trying to amplify the uh, the the audacity and extremity of the outbursts in various cities. So people are saying that folks are driving in from other places, that people have uh, no connection or really interest in the presenting problem, the death of a man on the street that has a nine-minute video accompanying the demise of his human existence. In addition to that, uh, there are people who are coming into cities and trying to instigate riots and further uh, divide, incite, and exacerbate the problems. So, are we just in a free fall? How are we to understand moments like this and how do we speak into them in addition to those challenges, uh, there is one more personal one that I want to mention. It actually uh, is relevant to you all as the body of Grace Church. As we walk through the sorrow of yet another church discipline situation, the brokenheartedness that that brings, there have been yet again uh, darts thrown at us as um, an unloving people, an overly analytical people, to introspective into the lives of others type people, and to sum it up, uh, allegedly accusations that we uh, are even a cult, and that uh, we're, you know, I guess cults are the kinds of people who are totally off their rocker and have no more relation to God than any other pagan who's ever been on the planet. So, I want to speak into all of that. Where we are as a church, where we are as a country, and I want to try to do that from the Word of the Lord. These will not be the most organized thoughts. I am speaking without notes for the first time in the history of Grace Church. Father in Heaven, would you give me a word Would you cause it to be a prophetic word? Fill me with the Holy Spirit for the sake of Christ, for the good of your people, and for drawing a bold line in the sand where you draw it. And call us, I pray, through your word to yourself and to your people. And if we do not love our brother who we see, then at least give us the honesty to admit there's no way we can love God whom we do not see. And on the flip side of that coin, we pray positively that we would be so enthralled with your love for us, reverberating back into true gospel-centered love for you and flowing out in love for neighbor, that it will be abundantly obvious that we are truly children of God. We love you. We bless you. We need you. In Jesus' name. Amen. 
In the book of Obadiah, we find basically two parts. The first part, verses 1 to 15, addresses Edom, that is the descendants of Jacob's brother Esau, and they are addressed in those first 15 verses with the singular pronoun you. In verses 16 to 21, we see another personal pronoun, you, but this time it's plural. And in verses 16 to 21, God is addressing through Obadiah the people of Jerusalem, the people of God. But as I mentioned a moment ago, Obadiah is situated in redemptive history following the Babylonian captivity, 586 BC. We don't know exactly the date, but we do know it's following that. And here's what's happening. Carnal people, as a result of God's judgment, have overtaken the people of God, the places in which they dwell, and have carried them away into captivity. In that process, God's people Israel were fleeing for their lives. And as they flee from one place to another and one country to another and across borders, they are doing what anybody would do. They are trying to go the direction where they anticipate they will find the most reprieve, the most peace, the most help, the most assistance, the most aid. And so Israel goes toward Edom. And when they encounter Edom, not only do they not find peace, they actually realize they're being sabotaged. That Edom is in cahoots with Babylon, in spirit anyway, if not officially, and are actually baiting and setting traps for Israel to meet their own demise as they flee. So basically what's happening is there is a people who feel trapped. They have nowhere to go. And there are three categories that are addressed in the book of Obadiah, political, economic, and theological. And if somebody were to stand up with a microphone in the United States of America today and talk about three areas that everybody needs a fresh, clear, clean word on and direction concerning, it would be our politics, our economy, and God. So I'm coming from Obadiah to speak to you in that way. I'll just read a couple of verses from chapter, well, the only chapter, uh, verses 6, 7, 8, and 9. Oh, how Esau will be ransacked and his hidden treasures searched out. All the men allied with you will send you forth to the border and the men at peace with you will deceive you and overpower you. They who eat your bread will set an ambush for you. There is no understanding in him. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountain of Esau? Then your mighty men will be dismayed, O Teman, in order that everyone may be cut off from the mountain of Esau by slaughter. This is the word of God. What we find in this passage is that God, yes, is judging Israel. Yes, they've been carried away into Babylonian captivity as a result of God's judgment upon the rebellious people. But God is also going to judge the pagan nations that do harm to his people. And while these people feel trapped, they feel like they have nowhere to go. There is no safety. There is no shelter. There is no refuge. God is saying to those who harm them that he will exact justice upon them. And in the second half of the book of Obadiah, we, uh, the, the book ends with 
verse 21, the deliverers will ascend Mount Zion to judge the mountain of Esau and the kingdom will be the Lord's. It ends with the kingdom of God in full display in the lives of its people where they dwell with him under his reign. Well, in our situation, we find ourselves today incredibly challenged, perplexed, broken, not knowing what to say. And I know that uh, from experience, personally, that not saying anything about the matters that I'm about to speak about has allowed the accusation to come so many times that I'm complicit in the problem because of my silence. And then, on the other side of the coin, when I have tried to speak, the accusations come from the other direction that I'm uh, actually complicit in some kind of pseudo-liberal agenda to detract from the gospel and do social liberation theology. So let me be clear. Every single human being who's ever been born will spend eternity either in heaven or hell. Most of the people who have ever lived on planet Earth are right now under the judgment of God in hell, and most of the people alive today will join them, and most of the people who are going to be born in the days to come until Jesus returns will also join them. But a remnant, a precious few, and that God saves any at such a cost, even one at such a cost to himself, is a testament to his immense, incalculable mercy. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, there is an opportunity for rescue from eternal damnation. So, to be as clear as I possibly can, and if this is liberal, liberal, then I am. Jesus Christ is the dividing line of all men. Black, white, rich, poor, old, young, from every continent, in every time, in every place. The Lord Himself has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through the man, Jesus Christ. So, let me begin as uh, the book of Obadiah in the big picture is speaking about political judgment. It's God who is sovereignly orchestrating the judgment of nations. Israel's being judged. Babylon is God's uh, executioner and tool. And Edom, the descendants of Esau, Jacob's brother, are, are actually contributing to Israel's problems and challenges, but God is sovereign over it all. So nations, though they rise and fall, and though they war with one another, are all under the sovereign hand of God, all of them. Every kingdom that has ever been raised up, and all the ones that have long been forgotten and not even written about in the history books, all existed for the time that they did and with the influence they had, because God allowed it. The Lord Jesus stood before Pilate and said, you would have no authority over me unless my Father had granted it to you. Pilate himself, who was responsible, humanly speaking, for the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, was himself put in position by God. A nation does not have to be righteous for it to be sovereignly ordained by God. In fact, the Babylonians were anything but that. So the first thing I'm going to draw out is that both Babylon and Edom, these pagan nations and people, are part of the sovereign prerogative of God. We don't understand all of His purposes, 
but we do understand that He has them. The same is true in our day. So, I'm under no delusion that a small church with just over 100 members in downtown Memphis, Tennessee, uh, will ever have any kind of voice into the broader world, and I'm not trying to preach to them. But in God, if in God's providence, He is pleased that the audio recording that I'm now making makes its way into the ears of any political leader, local, state, national, or international, then let me be as clear as I possibly can be. If you're the king of Babylon, if you are the leader of Edom, if you are the king in Israel, or in contemporary terms, if you're the president of the United States of America, if you are the leader of any European country, if you are part of a socialist regime or some kind of communistic power, if you sit at the helm of any nation, you will stand before Jesus of Nazareth and be judged. You must repent of your sin or you will perish in hell forever. Is that clear? I don't know how to say it more clearly. And I stand before you with a broken heart to say, there's mercy available to you. If you will turn to the risen Jesus and you will throw your heart before Him in true repentance and believing upon Him who died and rose again on your behalf, God will have mercy on your soul and He will make you His child. In the United States and in the climate where we now live and the political divisions that have continued to grow further and further apart across the aisles of the respective predominant parties, what we need is not a political savior. There's nobody in our governmental system who could die for your sins in a way that would satiate the justice of God. Jesus Christ alone is the Redeemer. And across the aisle, people need to hit their face and bow before the King of the universe before, like Israel, judgment comes upon you as well. We're not looking for a political kingdom anymore. The first century believers had a hard time getting over that hump and it hasn't gotten any less challenging for the last 2,000 years. When Jesus came, his own disciples were expecting him to set up some kind of political power to overthrow Rome, to give uh, the shalom that the Old Testament prophets talked about in the city. But no, the writer of Hebrews puts it clear. We're looking for the city that's to come. A city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. The place of perfect peace and righteousness where the King of glory himself reigns forever. The book of Revelation speaks to us about that in chapters 19, 20, and 21 of this glorious celestial city full of peace and righteousness and justice. So, there was a political problem in the book of Obadiah's, or in Obadiah's time, and he's speaking about it in no uncertain terms. And he is not mincing words to assert that God is sovereign both over the judgment of nations, one against the other, and over the demise of nations and all the people therein who will not bow their knee to him and to the king of his kingdom, which we know in the New Testament is the Lord himself. The last thing I want to say is that Edom, who was sabotaging the Israelites as they were fleeing from Israel to avoid the Babylonian massacres and captivity, the rape and the pillage. And when Edom Israel's brother, Jacob's brother, was laying traps for them 
enticing them to come into a situation which they knew would lead to their demise. Do you not see that that's the age-old battle? Cain killed his brother Abel in the first chapters of the Bible. Instead of being for him the brother that he should have been and the the, the place of solace and, and refuge and safety that he should have been, he became his executioner. The same kind of intense strife has existed between the sons of Abraham since Isaac and Ishmael's days. And it's not going to cease on this side of eternity. But listen, friends. Listen. Our kinsmen, according to the flesh. I'm not talking about believers. I'm talking about human beings. Our kinsmen, according to the flesh. Many of them live in a situation where they feel like there is no safety. And even when they gravitate to the places where they would expect to find it, it's in those situations that they feel they're constantly being mown down. What kind of trauma does that create in the psyche and soul of a person? How much longer in our country are parents going to have to have the talk with their children that for some inexplicable reason, because of the way you look, you're going to be treated this way or that way? Now, I'm not trying to play into the enemy's agenda, and I'm going to get there in just a moment. But I am trying to say loudly and clearly, it ought not be when Acts chapter 17 is in the Bible and basic human reason lets everybody know this is true by virtue of common grace. Acts 17.26, that God made from one man every nation of mankind on the face of the earth. We're all related. Cut me and I bleed the same color as any other person who's ever lived in the history of humanity. One man, all peoples. But these strifes are not merely skin deep. There are deeper battles being fought. Just like it's being alleged that folks are showing up in the major cities of the United States in order to incite riotous activity who have really no interest or motivation based on the, 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 the crimes that we see on video and the killing of men like George Floyd that, that's not why they're there. They're, they're there because they have an alternate agenda, a more sinister motive to actually play on the emotions and volatility of people who are grieving and protesting and incite them to further evil. That's a double evil. And God sees it all. And every last one of those people, if that's actually happening, are going to have what Jesus described as a more severe punishment in the age to come, unless they too repent of their sins. Jesus said it would be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the Day of Judgment than for the cities of Tyre and Sidon. Why? Because Tyre and Sidon had Jesus, at least the teachings of Jesus available to them. The city of Capernaum had the teachings of Jesus available where Jesus made that statement, and they didn't repent. And they're going to be judged, therefore, more severely. And people who seek to take advantage of the sin natures of others 
and cause greater decimation and devastation and hurt and division and brokenness and loss will in fact receive a greater damnation. But my point is, humanity, even if there are people doing what I just described, we're one flesh. There's only one race, the human race. We're all created from Adam and Eve. We're descendants of one family tree. And it's high time that when we see situations that dehumanize our fellow kinsmen for us to at least acknowledge that we see it and say it. Finally, there's a spiritual battle. If my neighbor was right and if my friend who is standing in the middle of the mayhem on Lake Street in Minneapolis for the last three days is right and the media is actually using their mechanisms to create a narrative within the narrative so that they're motivated by greater division and greater de devastation and destruction, then it's not just the producers pointing the cameras or telling people where to point them. It's not just the, the reporters coming up with uh, a spin on a situation that will make it even more volatile. No, 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 no. This is the work of the enemy. This is Satan himself. This is spiritual warfare. And people may think we're out of our mind to assume that there are demonic powers hovering in the air uh, in which we live at all times, but there are. And our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And Satan is no doubt commandeering massive proportions of the media and other narratives in order to deceive, to divide, and to distract, and to destroy. And we as God's people cannot succumb to taking our emotional cues and our verbal talking points from Satan. God has given us His written revelation and we must tether ourselves to our King concerning whom Scripture is written and to whom all of it points and in whom all of it is fulfilled and by whom we are saved. So let me go back to my attempt to make that clear statement earlier. Jesus Christ is the dividing line. Jesus Christ is the dividing line in all of human history. God will judge the entire world by that one man. His divine Son, truly human, truly God, who for us sinners came into the earth, among whom you and I are the worst. There is nobody more sinful than you or me. And, brothers and sisters, let us lay ourselves down at His feet. Now glorified, having risen from the dead after He atoned for our rebellion at the cross to reconcile us to God, let us lay ourselves down at His glorified feet together and realize 
that the church universal, I mean all the people that belong to that Jesus, we are one. And this world is never going to experience the peace and the tranquility that all of us long for. And there's going to continue to be injustice in the world. But please, oh God, please don't let the church take her cues from the world. And when the media, even times when they're being commandeered by Satan, is trying to create a narrative for the whole world to talk about, please, church, let us take our talking points from our God. Let us live under His rule and His reign. Not to ignore this world in which we live. To be in it, but not of it. But let us take our talking points from Him and our prayer points from Him and share His heart. And instead of letting the darkness encroach upon the light, let us live so near to the light of God that the candle of our lives and our churches burn in a way that pushes back the darkness. That's how the gates of hell won't prevail against the church. And no matter what happens with this riotous age in which we find ourselves, no matter where it leads or how it ends, this much is certain. The purposes of God are going to continue to march forward. The last word of the book of Acts in the New Testament is in the Greek, unhindered. If you look at the book of Acts, you see problem and challenge after challenge. You see impediment after impediment. You see apostles getting imprisoned, stoned, beaten, people being run out of cities. You see all kinds of challenges, including riots. But the last word of the book, Luke puts their own purpose under inspiration, unhindered. God's Word just kept going and mowing down through the centuries, through the ages, through the political regimes, through the problems, through the challenges. And brothers and sisters, that's our family tree. That's who we're part of. That's our story. That's our narrative. We live in the stream of the faithful. And may we continue to march forward under the grace of our God and our King. One final word from the book of Obadiah. The exiles of this host of the sons of Israel, who are among the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem, who are in Shepharad, will possess the cities of the Negev. The deliverers will ascend Mount Zion, the judge to judge the mountain of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. That's a fact. And Obadiah, one of the people of his day, who are experiencing political, economic, and theological tyranny and confusion, and judgment from God. He wanted them to know that that's not the final chapter of the book, but the kingdom will be the Lord's. And you can guarantee that. Come hell or high water, the king of glory will have the reward of his sufferings. And one day, he's going to make everything right and perfect justice will be served. Between now and then, brothers and sisters, don't expect it. And let us be faithful in this present evil age to our faithful King. You're loved. May God bless you. Father in heaven, would you cause your face to shine upon us and be gracious to us. And oh Lord, lift up your countenance upon us. Would you again bring peace to Jerusalem, to our land, but not a faux peace. In fact, we don't want that. We pray against that. We're asking you 
to let righteousness rain down and that you would cause your people to live in such faithfulness to you that that when judgment falls, it's not on us for our rebellion. And even for our fellow kinsmen, like when Israel is carried away into Babylon, oh Lord, you called them to seek the welfare of the city and the prosperity of the city. And we ask, Lord, that we would be the kind of salt and light that's a preserving agent in our culture, in our communities, in our cities, in our nation, in our world. Lord, that you would cause your people to live for you, to focus on you, to be faithful to you. And I pray that for Grace Church. Lord, instead of some cosmic, big, worldwide prayer, I trust you're going to work in that way according to your purposes. But I'm asking you, from Willis to Chelsea, south to north in downtown Memphis, and from Front Street to Danny Thomas, west to east, in the community of Uptown, Lord, would you get glory for yourselves in the lives of the people. Use us in this little tiny subset, this little sliver of planet Earth. Would you use us to bring the glory of Christ? But not only there, Lord. That's where our church gathers. And we do pray for that community. But I pray for every member of this church and every community in which we live in all the circles of influence that you have entrusted to us, both in family relationships and work relationships and every other sphere. God, hunt down people and give to Jesus those who you have put into our lives as we minister the gospel of your grace. And then we trust there'll be peace between our fellow men. Help us to have real peace, Jesus himself the Prince of Peace. We ask in His name. Amen.